good morning. It's good to see you. <clears throat> My name is Luke, if we haven't met yet, and uh, it's good to have you guys here this morning. I'm looking forward to this passage, and so if you have a Bible or an app, we're going to be in the book of Acts. We are still marching through the book of Acts. I think this is our 15th or so week to be in the book, which we're not even halfway through it. But I love the book of Acts, still one of my favorite books because it's a little bit of a master class, not just on how the Holy Spirit can change a city or a region or the world, and it's not even a class on how fast he can do it, but I think one of the things that I'm appreciating most about the book is that God chooses to do so through an ordinary people that make up an ordinary church. That I love. Um, we, we can learn a lot from this book, and, and today is a good example of that. Um, this passage brings me a lot of optimism when it comes to the gospel, what we'll call gospel optimism today. Um, and if you were here a few weeks ago, we did talk a little bit about how we love as people to group each other into categories so that we know how to interact with each other. Right? It's just something that comes very natural to us. If I know ahead of time that you're a college football fan or you're a, a runner or triathlete or you love to plant churches, I get you. We could almost talk in code. I could almost finish your thoughts and you could probably finish mine. However, if you uh, love soccer and you're an electrical engineer and you have cats, I have to adjust my discourse because I don't understand you at all. I probably will like you, but I have to change my expectations on what I'm going to get out of a conversation with you. We all do this. We all do this. We all say in our head, without even saying it in our head, if I am this type of person and you are that type of person, then I know what to expect from this interaction. I know what to say. I know how to act. I know how to associate with you, right? That is basic social intelligence. That's all that is, right? But you could take the same phrase, and when that awareness turns prejudicial, it can lean all the way towards racism. So take the exact same statement. If I am this type of person, and you are that type of person, then I know how to interact with you. I know, I know what to expect. I know what I'm willing to give. I know what's going to happen when we talk back and forth. It's two totally different things, right? It could be something that helps us kind of get to know each other, or it could be discrimination. Discrimination, capital D, it's just prejudicial treatment. It doesn't have to be anything with skin color. You can discriminate against things that have nothing to do with the color of someone's skin. It can be against an ideology or a culture, right? It could be against a generation. You can discriminate generationally, right? Okay, boomer, right? That was fun for about nine minutes and then it got really old. Okay, boomer, I'm saying I'm not even a boomer and I'm saying that, it was old for me. But that's a generational type of discrimination. Anytime we say something like that, it, we are ultimately saying also, that's a type of person I don't want to associate with. It's easy to do that. How somebody votes, how somebody looks, the thing about discrimination is no one thinks it's lurking inside of them. We all think that's something that somebody else struggles with. Nobody, nobody fills out a census form and checks the box, I discriminate. Nobody does that. And when it comes to skin color, you might not be discriminatory or prejudicial. You might have actually grown up in a family that didn't use slurs. You might have grown up in a space or an environment or in a little bit of a subculture that didn't groom you to think in those sorts of ways. That, that could be true. But what about the discrimination that's much more subtle and aimed at other distinctions that will cause you to say, I prefer this people over this people, or I prefer not to associate with them at all? 
I mean, that's in us more than we would like to admit. Probably all of us. It's part of the broken human condition. I'm not even talking about systemic racism, whether you believe in that or not. I'm talking about human brokenness. We all prefer some types of people over others in a way that oftentimes is not very helpful. And and before you're very quick to respond, even inside saying, not me, I want you to imagine walking onto a plane with a long flight, like five, six hours long, right, with no layovers. You're stuck in that can, breathing everybody's air. You walk in, and you can choose between two seats. And on seat number one, it's a middle-aged white guy, right? He's loaded with tattoos. He's got a pride shirt on, right? He's wrapped in a pride flag. We'll just say that he's wrapped in a pride flag, and he has the them, you know, tattooed on his forehead so you don't mess his pronouns up. There's that guy. You could sit next to him for six hours or someone that looks just like you. Well, that decision makes itself, doesn't it? Not really a hard decision. We're all going to sit that is easier because what we're really saying is you're in a group and I'm in a group. And I don't associate with that group. I know the rhetoric is hyper-confusing right now. So many new words. Have you not looked up a few words that you're hearing in the news to just look up the definition and read the definition and go, wait, start over. What does that mean again? And then have to go back and read it again because it's so confusing. Intersectionality. We have gender dysphoria. We have critical race theory, critical theory, race theory. There's so much talk about who we are and what group we're in. So much talk about where we belong, what shoebox we are designed to be in. I've never felt the need to really label myself growing up as a kid, but apparently, as of a few years ago, I'm a heterosexual, cisgender, Caucasian male who goes by he, him from Generation X, who is also a conservative, reformed, charismatic, evangelical Christian who is an SEC fan that believes the best barbecue is beef. I'm also team pancake, not waffle, right? Do you see how many boxes I fit in? I had to read it. I had to highlight it on my notes and read it because there's so many boxes right now. But how you're grouped doesn't just identify who you are. Groups tell you who you're not. And sometimes those groups will tell you who you are against. And that's the stuff we're hearing a lot about in the news right now. Your oppressors and oppressed, male, female, non-binary, binary, legal, illegal, millennial, Generation Z, Generation X, boomer, phobes, racist, evangelicals, Republicans, Democrats, socialists, capitalists, white, black, anti-pro, mask, vaccine, cisgender, transgender. It's a lot. It's a lot. Never before in American history have we been so focused on atomizing everybody into groups and discussing what to do with those groups. It's never happened before. Just the words I've mentioned so far are making some of you nervous, right? Half the room is already nervous. And I haven't even said anything inflamed or infected. I've not done anything yet or said anything. But you might be a little afraid I might be on a team that's not your team, which is proving the exact point I'm trying to make, right? Just the words. We hear Fox News and CNN fire cannonballs back and forth. Hear neighbors and coworkers saying their views, which are probably different from your views. Families don't even agree. It's fatiguing. It's boring. It's confusing. And this is where the Bible shines, I think, is this timeless work of God, his thoughtfulness for you and for me. The Bible becomes this mirror that defines who we are. This becomes a mirror that we we read and tells us, exactly who we are. This is as cutting edge as it gets because what it'll do is it'll take the the confusing static of all the verbiage and theories today and it will make sense of it. And I'm so thankful for this. 
I'm so thankful. And listen, there are no chapters or verses that discuss critical race theory in your Bible. No, no book that talks about choosing pronouns or bathrooms or anything like that. But what it does is it speaks to the whole of life. How we see God. How we see man. How we see sin. How we see life. How we see eternity. It does speak to that. And today our passage actually speaks a little bit to the slight whispers of discrimination that might be in us. And shows us today that the gospel is perfect for the people that we are tempted to see as unclean and unlikely. It's perfect. People not like you, that don't have anything in common with you. People that you'd rather not associate with, the ones you mutter about in your heart, the ones you don't understand, the ones that confuse you, the ones you hope you never bump into, the ones you hope you never have to ride in a plane next to, the ones you want to avoid at all costs. I mean, listen, we're less than 200 days from midterm elections, right? And as social media is getting more inflamed and more infected, how are we to pray and think and speak as missionaries today? How are we supposed to do that regarding all the different labels and groups, right? And maybe the biggest question is, are you optimistic about the gospel's chances to change people who seem unlikely and unclean? Are you optimistic? Are you gospel optimistic? Let's look at what the Bible says. This is a fascinating passage. This is gonna, we're gonna start at the end of chapter nine. So if you have your Bible, we're actually gonna be in chapter nine. So where we're gonna start, verse 32. And this is gonna be the word of the Lord for us. It's a really cool time in church history. And it says this. Luke writes, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a, na- a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lita was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood behind him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay. This is what's interesting. Peter's doing some of the same things that Jesus did. I mean, Jesus also told a man that was crippled and handicapped to go ahead and get up and take his mat and then walk off and carry on with his life. And now Peter's doing the same thing. Christ also actually raised a young girl from the dead, and now Peter's doing the same thing. That's not a coincidence. We're not, we're not witnessing a coincidence here. This is the declaration that Jesus is still in the business of healing. He's just doing it through his ordinary church. Jesus is, and, and listen, he's still doing it today too, by the way. Make no mistake, Jesus is still healing today through his ordinary church. Jesus has power over the sick and the dead. 
over Samaria to the ends of the earth. The spirit of Jesus is literally unstoppable. Hear me now. It is unstoppable. It cannot be stopped ever to the edges of creation, to the very edges of time itself. I find this to be super cool. It's buried right there in that little piece, but if we have eyes to see it, then we have eyes to dream about what Jesus will do today in the church. But then it goes on. Look at verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's read a little bit longer to verse 16. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house he is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet des descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Okay. This is a powerful moment here because Peter is being converted away from a, a sort of discrimination that he had. Right? And it had nothing to do with skin color, by the way. This was not a racial discrimination. But God is taking three moments and three times to kind of bang in one singular lesson, and that is that the gospel is for all people. With the final cleansing of Jesus' work provided and the command to carry this gospel to all ethnic groups now given, we see that the old ceremonial laws about food and days and customs are lifted. Therefore, the barrier to the Gentile world is removed. And that's why Paul would later on say, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, we are all one people, right? That's what we're seeing. By the way, this is good news for us, a Gentile church. <laughs> Our history goes all the way back to this weird moment where he's hungry on a roof and has a trance, right? It all goes back to this strange moment where he walks in obedience from this point to Cornelius' house. And his vision has two points. One is that food laws are fulfilled and finished in Jesus. That's the obvious one. But even hiding behind that, Gentiles themselves are not to be considered unclean or untouchable. He's going to say as much here in a moment. Gentiles. I mean, the gospel is for all people. So let's look at this. Verse 17. It says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that they had seen might mean, because he's still trying to figure it out. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. I mean, imagine the timing of all of this. It's perfectly timed. 
and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So we invited them to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay, so what he's doing right there is just preaching a very basic gospel. It's a very basic gospel, but this is what I love about passages like this. It's basic in form, basic in language, basic in format, but the Holy Spirit is infusing this moment. You, you could tell just by reading it, the texture of this passage, Jesus has been building this moment. The timing of when the angel would appear to Cornelius, and then the timing of when Peter goes up on the roof, and the timing of when you could see the architecture of this brilliant pivot in church history. This is something that God thoughtfully, carefully put together. And then Peter shows up with all of this weight, all of this magnitude, this growing crescendo, and gives a very basic gospel presentation. Just very basic. And this is what happens. 
Verse 44, when Peter was still saying these things, he didn't even get to finish. The Holy Spirit fell on all who had heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing, baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And then if you were to read the first dozen or so verses of the next chapter, it's Peter going and reporting everything that we just read. Right? It's a powerful moment. No more barriers. Jesus is for everyone to the ends of the earth. The gospel is for all people. Just as Jesus said in Acts 1.8, it's happening right now. Listen, it's not a complicated passage. And there's a lot of repetition even in it. You, you picked up on that, I'm sure. It's not a complicated passage. What is complicated is, I think the church today really needs to consider a similar conversion like what Peter's going through. We'd never say that the gospel is not for all people. We just think it's probably not likely for all. Not likely. We're less optimistic about those that we do not deal with. We're less optimistic about people that we will not associate with, the ones that make us angry, the ones that make us insecure and fearful. That's the subtle voice of discrimination in all of us, that the gospel may be for all, but it's not likely for all, that the spirit will blow where he feels like blowing, but probably really around people that look like us. It took God three times to reinforce this with Peter. Peter, before this moment, saw people as unclean, unlikely, and would not associate with them. This is what I want you to notice about this passage. It doesn't even seem crazy at all for him to pray for a dead girl and a crippled man. That, that didn't get any airtime in this. Did you notice that? Dead girl? Sure. Where's she at? Let's get this going, right? Guy on a mat? That's easy. That's small ball. We've done this a hundred times. Not a big deal. But when it comes to Cornelius' family, I mean, think about just the ratio. The cripple gets four verses. The dead girl gets five verses. The Gentile household, 65 verses. Why? Why so much weight? Why all the attention? This key turning point is not just to show us that God is strong enough to bring the dead to life, not just strong enough to heal cripples and make people whole, but actually strong enough to take people who have discrimination in their hearts, who are very dissimilar and would prefer not to associate with each other, together, in one family, in one tent, as one people for all of eternity. I love what he says in Acts 10, 28. You, this is, he's talking to a group of people that are not like him. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. This is what's cool about what's happening right here. Very similar to what Peter is dealing with is something that Jonah the prophet dealt with to a certain degree, which happens by, maybe, maybe there's nothing to this, I don't know, but that is Peter's namesake. Jesus would call him Simon Barjona, okay? That just means son of Jonah. So you've got this, you've got this interesting collaboration between how they would handle people that were not like them. They both were resolved not to associate with the people that were in deep need of God. They both had discrimination in their hearts, the prophet and the apostle. One had three visions to drive it home. The other one had three days and a fish to drive it home. They both would proclaim God's glory to people unlikely and unclean. 
Jonah would hesitate whenever God's grace came down. Peter would not. But if you'll read in chapter 11, the people that he carries the news to, they're going to struggle with it. They're going to struggle with God's grace. I'm blown away by the Bible's symmetry. I don't think any of that's an accident, by the way. God conquers discrimination and replaces it with a holy gospel optimism. He creates a people that used to say the gospel is unlikely here to saying the gospel's perfect for here. The gospel's not likely for this people group and what they believe and how they vote, how they carry them. It's not likely to the gospel's perfect for them. And they're perfect for the gospel. It's gospel optimism. What is it that tempts you to consider some people unclean? I mean, it could be race. I don't know. It could be culture, generation differences, age differences, sexuality, ideology, voting record. What is it for you? I want you to think beyond racism, too, if you can. Right? Don't get lost there. But why do we create space and not associate with some groups of people. You know, as it turns out, that's a gospel issue, which is good news because that means there's a gospel answer. And as clear as I can see it, and as clear as the word speaks to us, it's because we fail to enjoy the value that is given to us by God through the person of Christ. We don't see ourselves as valuable. I know it sounds like a far stretch, but hear it out. We don't trust that the value inscribed on us by the work of God and Jesus is enough. We don't think it's enough, so we have to create that value here on earth. And as long as you are beneath me, I am above you. That's how the math works. And for me to be above you, you got to be beneath me for me to be valuable. So we create camps. And I'm in a camp. And if my camp is more valuable than your camp, then I have value. It's just discrimination. It's the heartbeat of discrimination. It's a self-preoccupation with self-glory. And it can only find those who are not preoccupied with the glory of God. When we are trying to fill our own glory tank, and we are not preoccupied with the beautiful glory that God is, we'll find discrimination quickly. If God is not glorious in our eyes, we will try to make ourselves glorious. This was the original fall in the garden. This is what Adam did. We carry it with us today. So as missionary disciples, creating space with other people because of how they dress, their age, how much money they make, who they vote for, the stuff that comes out of their mouth, the stuff they put on social media. If we're creating that space that is not gospel optimism, it's pessimism. And the one big thing that we know about the book of Acts is it shows a picture of a church leaning forward in order to turn a world upside down. It's a gospel optimistic church. And we have so much reason to be optimistic. We have so much reason, I mean, I think one of my favorite lines in the very basic gospel presentation we see Peter giving is he says this, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. What does that mean, tree? I thought he was hung on a cross. Was that just poetry or something? Kinda. It kind of is, but it's also from the Old Testament. We see Moses say this in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. 
cursed. And then what Paul does is because Paul's super smart, he will pick up some of Moses' words and locate it in today's words, and he would maybe refurbish it, remix it with, with the lens of Christ, and he would say this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Right? Everyone. The curse of the law fell on Christ so the favor of God could fall on us. In other words, the blessed became cursed, so the cursed could become blessed. This is the divine trade that was made at a tree. Made at the tree, which is interesting. A tree once held fruit that was forbidden to man, and because of that, a man doomed us to all. And then a tree later on would hold a king who would become a man to win us all. This is a beautiful trade. And now, because of what Jesus has done, as he was hung on a tree and cursed in our place, The law doesn't separate you from God. Jesus fulfilled it. So the demands of a law broken is not going to crush you anymore. And now cultural laws, ceremonial laws, they don't separate us. You can eat differently than me. You can celebrate days differently than I celebrate days. In Christ, you and me, we're one. We're one. And when dead people come alive and crippled people become whole and enemies become friends, let it give you optimism. Let it give you an optimism that there is no more unlikely group. I mean, think about it, unlikely. What does that even mean? Were you likely? I was unlikely. I was unlikely. Why am I harping on this? I just, gospel optimism is necessary for city renewal. Knoxville is waiting for a church, capital C, to be optimistic about who is perfect for the gospel. It needs a church like that. I was at the Rossini Festival yesterday with my family, looking around, seeing the tens of thousands of people walking around, all of them perfect for the gospel, but no more unlikely than me. But I think only a church that has a gospel optimism is gonna lean forward into something like that. Every person you see can be changed. Think about that. Every single person you see, you see on social media, you see on the news, you see across the street, they can be changed. Every group can be edited by the Holy Spirit. Every single human is perfect for the gospel. That's how optimistic I am about the news of Jesus. Whenever you meet somebody, just ask yourself, ask yourself, why not this person? Why not this person? What could God do in the life of this person, like right now? Is it possible? The answer is yes, it is. See, I read a passage like this, and I I find a lot of room for me to repent. I think there's room for all of us to repent of any little whisper of discrimination that might be lurking in the background. I get angry with groups of people. I, I watch the same news you watch, read the same things you read, and I can get real angry. I can get bitter, not with skin color, but with ideology. I don't want to associate with everybody. I don't always want to invest in people. I'm tempted to see people as unlikely. So I have to leave that at the foot of the cross where Jesus invested in me as someone who is highly unlikely and very unclean. And now because of what God has done, we are free to be beneath other people. We're free to be last because we're buried in Christ and we have all the value a universe can bestow upon us. In fact, you have so much value and worth and significance it cannot be increased upon This land that we roam cannot add any more value to you. In other words, we have nothing to lose. 
nothing to lose. I love how Paul does this. He's very careful in 1 Corinthians 9. This will be the last passage we go through. He says this, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, just a few verses, four verses. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. You see how he's doing that? He's associating without assimilating all their beliefs. He's, he's finding a, a way to associate with different groups of people without taking on all the baggage of what they believe. That I might win some outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Knoxville is full of unlikely and unclean people you'd never want to associate with. And you are free. You are free to serve in order to win some. It just requires a death to self-preoccupation and self-glory. And a satisfaction of the value that has been given to you because of the work of Christ who hung cursed on a tree so the curse of the law wouldn't find you. 